Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 311 with Peter Yarrett of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and I hope you and your family are okay, healthy, safe uh, during this crazy time. So today's guest, his name's Peter Yarrett and he's a founder and CEO of a company called In Country. Now, what's interesting about Peter is he's actually built a few companies and he sold them for millions of dollars. So I talked to him about just really um, how the how, if you're in the B2B space right now and businesses are really starting to kind of tighten things up and you're going out there and you've got a long lead cycle and you're trying to work out, well, how the hell am I supposed to get through to this person? How can I close these sales? Uh, He lays it all out there. He also talks about how really timing has allowed him to have these successful exits or build these successful companies and uh, how he identifies trends. And he has a really interesting approach around how he rides the waves of certain trends. Uh, We talk about push versus pulling when it comes to selling and uh, also why he doesn't believe that the most superior product always wins. Uh, This was a really interesting conversation. Peter's been through multiple recessions and uh, he really shares a lot of experience on, you know, what you should be thinking about as a founder right now. 
All right, guys, if you are enjoying these episodes, we spend so much time just hunting down, finding these incredibly successful founders that, you know, most people don't get to speak to. And I I just like, I'm so proud of the content that myself and the founder team put out. Uh, Look, this is all 100% free. So all we ask is that you share this. Share this with somebody in your network, any of your friends, any of your family, anybody that wants to start or grow a business, please do share this with them. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question that I ask uh, everyone that comes on is, uh, how'd you get your job? My job where, I, where I'm at right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you find yourself uh, doing the work you're doing today? Oh, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, when I was nine or 10 years old, uh, and, you know, I'm older, so this was in like 1979, you know, um, I ran into my first computer, which was an Apple II at my school. I was living in uh, Vienna, Austria, so it was in Europe, and just immediately fell in love with computers and programming them. And so for fun, I coded games, utilities, things like that on a variety of computers, Apple IIs, uh, Sinclairs, uh, Commodores. Uh, and, you know, I was lucky that my parents bought me a computer like a year or two after that, a Commodore VIC-20, uh, you know, which had three and a half K of RAM and a 6510 CMOS processor. Uh, and I learned, you know, basic and assembly and just, you know, just had a ton of fun programming computers uh, and that's how I fell into it. Yeah. Wow. And uh, what was your first company? Cause you've built and sold six B2B enterprise companies, the B2B yeah. SaaS and yeah. enterprise companies. Exactly. Well, there wasn't SaaS back then, so they weren't all SaaS. Uh, but uh, yeah, so my, my first uh, real project was, you know, I programmed over the years, and then even in high school, I was starting to do it professionally, where people paid me to build systems. And at that point, I was living near Washington, D.C., so I was doing government systems uh, professionally through high school and college. And uh, a friend of mine turned me on to this uh, small talk-like visual language called ProGraph uh, in the early 90s, and we both loved this language. And then... You know, we were using this uh, client server package on the Macintosh called 4D. And we were like, ah, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great if this program system had something like that? So built a full client server development environment and deployment environment on top of this existing package. And the, the company that published it, you know, really liked it. So they, they published my software on top of theirs. And then eventually bought out the, the license to the software after that. So that was my first project. And I sold it. And, you know, and it was back in the days where one person could build something competitive all by themselves, right? So it was just me. Wow. A little bit of support from the, you know, from the publisher. You know, and I sold it. And, and that was like the first one. But, you know, it was funny because in 1995, I went to Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And back then, they used to have a European one. And it was in Stockholm. And I ran into this guy from Symantec. And he told me all about Java. And I was like, well, isn't Java just, you know, the Duke guy juggling balls? And, you know, for back then, it was just for the browser, right? And he goes, no, no, it's actually a real language. You should look into it. And I flew home from Stockholm. 
downloaded, you know, the Java development kit. And I was like, oh my God, this language is amazing. And then I created a client server environment for that. So that's something that helped you connect Java applications to databases and quickly make, uh, first it was, you know, full GUI Java apps and then HTML apps as well. Uh, and you got to imagine this is 95, 96, you know, before the whole internet boom went through. Mm. So those are the first two projects. Yeah, I see. And, you know, um, in your career, like building and selling six software companies uh, is, is a pretty impressive feat. Like, uh, did, did have you always built companies to sell them? You know, I always start these things because they're fun. Uh, you know, the reality of the software business is, you know, everybody gets bought at some point, right? Even after they go public, right? You know, somebody writes a big enough check, like just today, Thousand Eyes sold to Cisco for a billion dollars, right? And, you know, and I think it's because of the distribution side on enterprise, right? Which is, it's hard to be a long-term independent company. Um, and you can see companies even like Slack and Zoom are going through this, right? Because the incumbents are coming after them hard, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, I never build them to sell them. I build them to build them, uh, you know, and, and sometimes there's just a natural life to certain projects and companies, you know, and, you know, some of these companies, you know, we ran out of money and I had to sell them in a jiffy, you know, because our investors you know, pull the rug out from under us and, you know, or the market shifted, things like that. So it's not always like a gravy train, but, you know, when you build a good product with good technology and a good team around it, you can always find a good home, right? At a reasonable price for the company. And I've other ones that have done a lot better and other ones that were that, right? Yeah. So what is, um, been your most successful exit, if you don't mind sharing or, or yeah, or you can't, if you can't, that's okay too. Well, we've had two that were big. One, you know, that JRAD company, I was just telling you about that Java one. We sold it to Net Dynamics in 1998. Uh, I'm sorry, 97. And then the technology behind that became the basis for Net Dynamics future product, which was like pure Java based. And we went and showed it to Sun Microsystems. And then Sun Microsystems bought the company in 98 for $235 million. And then wow. a year later, their stock went up 13x. Wow. So, you know, everybody made a lot of money on that. We had investors that actually held the stock for a year and it was like a massive outcome for them, right? Cause it was a pre.com right at the inflection point where everyone's stock went boom. Um, and then last year, uh, actually a year and a half ago, we sold a company called Sappho that I started back in 2014. We sold it to Citrix, uh, which is, you know actually doing quite well right now because they specialize in remote work. Uh, we sold it to Citrix for 225 million. And their yeah. stock has subsequently gone up like 50%. So the people that held did well. Yeah, well, um, have you held? Some, yes. So at Sun, I did quite well after we sold that dynamics to them. Uh, Citrix, uh, no, I sold immediately. Um, I was yeah. only there for six weeks. Um, you know, some of the way, sometimes the way stock is structured, you do have to sell it to cover the taxes. Uh. Uh, but my co-founder is still there. He did very well. I'm very psyched for him. <laughs> you know, Fuad El Nagar, he's a great guy. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, um, and uh, always in the enterprise space, hey? Yeah, you know, I just have an inclination to do B2B companies. I did one 
that started as B2C as a fun project. Uh, and then we pivoted it to B2B, which is kind of funny. And, and that project was called Post Post. Uh, and it was a social aggregator of news articles. And so this is kind of a different era in time. I think it was like 2011. And I noticed, you know, my friends are posting more interesting stuff on Facebook that I can see on like tech meme. It's like before Facebook got super politicized, right? People would be like, oh, I found this weird article in, you know, some niche scientific journal or whatever, right? So I wrote a, uh, uh, and it was funny because I was playing with the Facebook API. So I wrote three versions of it, actually. One in Python, one in, I can't remember the PHP, and then one in JavaScript fully on the client. And that's the one we ended up going with. And it would go into your Facebook uh social graph, find all the articles that people posted, and then it laid it out in a grid. It used a thing called uh, jQuery masonry. Uh, And that's when I first found Pinterest, because Pinterest was the only other system that laid stuff out in blocks like that, which is not like a very familiar view. And then, you know, so we launched this thing and it was in Mashable and CNN, you know, and, and we got all these calls from brands going, this is really cool. We'd like to add something to our homepage you know, with the social posts that we've done, you know, about shoes at Nine West and stuff like that, right? So it was pretty funny that, you know, when sports teams started using it, you know, when you're like, take a picture, uh, you know, and add a hashtag. And then we had a dashboard where you could curate it and put it on the jumbo screen, right? So we had a lot of fun with that project. Uh, And it ended up getting acquired by Sprinkler, which is like a big, uh, you know, unicorn social media type of uh, tools company. Ah, I see. And um, I find it interesting when you talk about each company, you talk about them as projects. Uh, Is that how you always see new businesses, new business opportunities, not as a, because I I think, yeah, I think um, when you talk, when you, when you describe it as a project, it sounds more fun. Yes. Because what's the point of doing it if it's not fun and sometimes not all projects become companies. Like I remember in in the early 2000s, I was building computers. They were called shuttles now, like they're called it back then. They're like, they call them like an Intel nuke. Right. And then I was like cobbling together a interactive like media center on top of it. And I just had fun. Right. And I could pick out my media. I could set up file servers. I built my own UI for it. And that did not turn into a business, but it was still a fun project, right? And and one thing I've learned, because now I'm on my seventh one, is, you know, a big part of uh, of companies is timing. Sometimes the time is right. Sometimes the time is wrong, right? And, And one VC said years ago, early is wrong, right? And so one of the things I like to do is tinker with something. And then when the time is right, that's when you turn it into a company. So does that mean you might have many projects going at one time? Or interests or ideas that you're fleshing out and playing with and maybe building a little prototype around. But, you know, it may not be real. The market may shift. Companies may enter that market, you know. And one thing I've learned is you have to be part of a trend. And the trend has to be an exciting trend. And I've been fortunate because I was part of the client server trend. Then I was part of the Internet trend. Then I was part of the open source trend in the early 2000s. Then I was part of the social trend <laughs> on two sides, right? First, social publishing, 
with uh, Transpong, where we had like NBC and CBS and people like that, and Universal Music Group, Lady Gaga's customers. And then on the aggregation side was the next project after that, which is people want to put it all together and put it on their website with with uh, Post Post, which became Postano. And at Sappho, we were part of the employee experience trend, right? Which is employees came to work, you know, like millennials, people your age would come at a job somewhere and then they're expected to learn how to use like crappy SAP systems and even mainframes through a terminal. And they're just like, this is terrible. And we put this beautiful layer on top of everything and made it really simple and easy to use all these wacky systems. So the old companies, the companies didn't have to replace their old systems, but they could provide a new UI very securely. And that was actually a very timely thing because it was right at the point where millennials were 50, 60, some companies is 80% of their workforce, right? You know, and the current company, the trend we're based on is data regulation, right? And I had the idea, you know, three and a half, four years ago, and now it's top of mind. Yeah, no, that's cool. So I think that's a really... Um interesting takeaway is, is is timing and 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 during a trend so how do you know when the timing is right though you don't, you don't want to be too early you don't want to be too early and even i have done some too early sappho actually we were a year or two too early on it right it took a while for that to mature you know um and, and so you really have to start to to, it's like catching a wave when you're surfing, right? You have to know when that undertow is enough that it's going to come and tip, right, over. I'm using a surfing analogy because you're Australian, so I hate to, uh, you know, make fun of cultures, but that's what you guys are known for, and, you know, uh, you know but, but really, you know, it, it, it's having that fidelity, and this is why I like to have them as side projects and projects, right, because then you're not compelled to build a company around it, uh, until you know that there's, it has legs under it, right? Hey guys, I really hope you're feeling inspired from today's interview. The truth is there's never been a better time to build an e-commerce business. And the best part is you don't have to do it alone. And that's where Founder Plus comes in, which I'm really excited to share with you. If you're feeling stuck in your e-commerce business, lacking confidence to move forward, or really worrying about making costly mistakes, Founder Plus is here to support you. You get access to a customized learning pathway with proven frameworks from successful e-commerce founders for fast results, a supportive community, weekly live mentorship, exclusive savings on startup tools and 24 7 real human support try founder plus today for just one dollar for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence you can visit founder.com forward slash founder plus trial or click the link in our show notes to claim your trial all right now let's jump back in the show and then once so so once it has legs or you can see that there's the, the trend is starting to come is that when you go out and raise VC? Do you are you tip are you because I know you're based in San Fran, that the, that's a typical playbook, right? Like B two B SaaS enterprise, that's a very expensive model. So my last four projects, so ActiveGrow, Transpond, Postano. No, my last five projects were actually self funded initially. Ah, uh, why? Uh, because it's hard to raise money if you don't have something that works end to end. Like if I'm like, if I come to you, I'm like, Hey, I have this great idea. Give me some money. Right. That's one conversation versus, Hey, I have this great idea and I built software that actually works and you can play with it and test it and look at it. And we're going to go have some other people look at it. 
you know, and start using it, do you want to invest in that? You're much farther along, right? And it doesn't take much to make something work end to end, right? And, and this is actually, you know, a teaching that I try to share with a lot of younger engineers and they just don't get it because they think they have to build the perfect system always. And every little bit of it has to be perfect. When in fact, what the beauty of software, it's not like building a skyscraper, right? You can build the top floor of the skyscraper, right? Without having foundations that drill all the way into the, you know, 30 feet underground, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 and you can have something that kind of works end to end. Does it scale? No. Is it highly secure? No. But you can get the ideas out there, see what people think, get feedback, show it to potential investors, uh, you know, and then start filling in stuff behind it because it's virtual, right? It's software. It's not buildings or bridges. Yeah, that's interesting because one thing I've noticed in my, I guess, short career as a as a founder, I've been doing this for six, seven years now and create two companies, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing beats a product that's just easy to sell, right? Yes. When it's a grind, it's just so much harder to get traction. But if you if you just create the product and you just see for the first time, it's so easy to sell. And when I say easy, it just it just feels quite effortless, and people understand the like the problem that it's solving, and it just it just goes and it just makes everything so much easier. That's what you've got to look for from my experience thus far. What is your take there? I totally agree. And that's also described as, you know, push versus pull selling, Mm -hmm. right? Are you going around and knocking on 10 doors and trying to convince somebody that they need something? First, you have to convince them that they have the problem. Then you have to convince them that you're the right solution on and on and on. Or, you know, if you knock on 10 doors and eight of the people are like, oh my God, we have this problem and thank you for bringing us a solution. And even if it's not perfect, they're willing to tell you what's wrong with it, da, 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 da a much, much better value prop, right? Uh, and, you know, mental sanity at a startup experience, right? Yeah. You know, it's a big, uh, big thing in, in Silicon Valley. You guys are pro product versus pro marketing. You're still pro marketing, but fundamentally best product wins, right? That's your school of thought. Absolutely not. No. No. The, the better product loses all the time, especially against incumbents, you know, because a lot of people buy the safe thing and da, 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 and, and the people that take shortcuts in their product are in the market before you and selling and then they backfill. So I have lost to inferior products. Like when I was doing Transpond, Buddy Media was an inferior product. They used to come to our website all the time because you could do tracking, right? And copy our features and da, 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 da. We were like way ahead of them, right? But that doesn't mean you're going to win, right? If they have better relationships, better channels, better partnerships, you know, a worse product can win, right? Yeah, well, but you know what? That's interesting, your take, because you know what I'm talking about, because this is what a lot of guys out Silicon, like guys and girls out Silicon Valley say. I agree you disagree. With you. I disagree because I've seen it not work out that way, right? And I'm sure when you look at it, you've seen it work out not that way, where where the product that's fun, foundationally better or fundamentally better doesn't always win, right? You see it all the time, you know. When you're starting these companies, what are you focused on to win? 
if you know that it might not be the better product because you're an engineer by trade. Yeah. Uh, typically, when you start companies, you're you're really like the um, the Steve Wozniak CTO CIO, right? Well, yeah, but there's two sides of it, right? Because hacking a market and how to sell to a market is a very engineering task, right? You know, who's buying it? Why? Where's the interest? What's the key features that people care about? How long does it take to get in there? Who are you talking to? What are What is the system of people that need to agree inside a company to buy your product? If it's like 10 people and 10 different teams, you're screwed, right? You know what I mean? If it's one key buyer that has the influence to convince InfoSec and the other teams that they have to do it, then you're in a much better place. Uh, but, you know, but to your question, you know, I usually start on stuff because I think something's interesting. And, and as I get older, I'm starting to realize the stuff that I think is interesting generally is the beginning of a trend. Right. And and if I think five things are interesting and I'm cat tracking those five things, one of them is eventually going to start to inflect as a real trend. And then you have to go, okay, I have something that works end to end in this space. Who wants to buy it? Why do they want to buy it? Where's the biggest pain point, right? And then you have to play the startup game, which is, you know, when you're like a nobody, you know, Chevron is not buying your software, right? You know, Bank of America is not saying, yeah, come on in. I'm going to buy software from you, right? And sometimes you have to go find the smaller customers and then crawl up the value chain. And then other times you're in a space like where we are right now, we store regulated data at in-country, right? So we are built to store regulated data for banks and healthcare providers and people like that. There aren't any small ones. There's no small banks, you know? And so we have to build up the technology and the credibility and the external audits and stuff such that people feel comfortable with us, right? Uh, but yeah, but so there's like, there's this whole game. And if you take an engineering perspective to the go-to-market and make it, you know, very mechanical, very predictable, it actually works pretty well. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. The, I've never done enterprise before, so I have no experience selling to mm -hmm. that market. But what I do know is it's really long lead times. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, people buy Slack immediately, right? They just put in their credit card. So, so, and people uh, talk about an Australian company, Atlassian, it's usually pulled in by an engineer somewhere, right? Puts in the credit card and boom, they're using it. So those are the dream, right? Is you're selling to other businesses, but it's a very pull-based model. People find you, they can start small and you start to grow like a, uh, organically within, within the organization. That's the dream. Uh, but it's very small number, finite number of uh, applications where you can do it that way. Usually you are doing some type of typical, we're going to do some marketing, we're going to try to attract people, or we're going to do outbound sales to a particular role. Then we're going to see what it takes to qualify, whether it's real or not, right? At that account, so we don't waste time on it, <laughs> right? And then, we, and then we go sell and then you learn over time. Oh, when I sell to financial services, to the director of application security, the deals move fast, right? Oh, there's a government deal. It actually needs 10 buy-ins. You know, that one's going to move slow. So you start to measure this kind of stuff, right, about what works and what doesn't. And one of the big tricks to enterprise software sales is figuring out who's going to buy it, why, why they care, and then finding more of that person.
And like, uh, what what is the process? You just find them, find those people through LinkedIn and reach out cold. Sometimes yes. Uh, hopefully, you have a network of people you can go to. You have friends that will try it out and give you some feedback. Uh, but eventually, you are going to find this is exactly who I want at this type of company in this type of region. And then you reach out cold on LinkedIn. You do email campaigns. You do marketing campaigns. You buy lists. You know, you try to offer something that's interesting to people. You try not to bug them too much, right? You know, this thing about I'm going to send you an email and then another email and then this is the last email I'm ever going to send you. I mean, yeah, come yeah. On. enough already, right? You know, yeah. and try to be helpful to people. Hey, we ran into a new article about data regulations in Australia. We thought you might be interested in, mm-hmm. right? That's the, uh, you know, you're not going to ever be their friend, right? But you also don't want to be the annoying gnat. So, you know, my advice is be the helpful neighbor, right? You know what I mean? And, and people, sometimes helpful neighbors are annoying, but, you know, a lot of times it's like, yeah, it's like, hey, Nathan, you know, I know that, you know, you do these podcasts and I heard about this great software that fix, fixes audio quality. Check this out. Or, hey, here's an article or some, some data on, you know, where podcasts are growing the most, you know, especially ones for startups. And it's, you know, Southeast Asia because it's booming there, right? Vietnam, you know, has a ton of startups and that's where this type of, you're like, oh, that was actually helpful to me, right? (laughs) You know? Mm, Yeah, serve first, ask later. Yeah, so you got to give a little bit, right? You can't always just be take, take, take. Yeah, because I've never done enterprise, uh, but it scares me to be honest because like, um, to be honest, Peter, when you mentioned like, you know, Slack or Atlassian, like, like, you know, we're a small business and we pay for Confluence where we pay for Slack. Um, but when, yeah, when I say enterprise, I'm talking like, you know, not just not small business, not mid market, but big business like enterprise, yeah. like you say, you know, Bank of America. Like I've never sold to those that to those kind of companies that would scare me, to be honest. Yeah, hey, it still scares me to this day. I'm in it right now. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, are we going to close this deal? Because it becomes very unpredictable. Right. Uh, you know, these places are constantly reorging. So you lose your key champion or mm. stuff gets caught up in legal because they have other priorities, which has happened to us you know, even yeah. this quarter. Right. Because everyone has like a COVID project that they have to jam through. Right. And it goes right to the top of the list. Right. Like, you know, we've had deals drag out now for like three months because all of a sudden that company has to accelerate a bunch of remote work bids. Right. So they now need to bring in, you know, Zoom, Zscaler, Citrix, this, that and that. So all of a sudden, in the space of two weeks, they need to go off and negotiate with, you know, five different vendors, go through all their SLAs, their data processing agreements, their contracts, blah, 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 blah. And that is the number one priority. Right. So your deal is going behind all of those. Right. And so that's like been the biggest COVID impact to us. Right. Not that our market disappeared which i'm glad that did not happen because it happened to some people like in travel and such right but that other things became a bigger priority all of a sudden right yeah so um can you talk more like about your experience uh with covid and yeah anyone selling to enterprise what have you what have you done to kind of counteract or yeah kind of respond as a company um to to you know keep building the moat yeah. Sustainability. Well, one, we're lucky in that we're a global company. So we sell worldwide 
And so, for example, you know, end of January, it was very clear that our Asia business was going to implode, right? And it was half our pipeline. Yeah. So we had an early sign and we actually did cost cutting at the beginning of February yeah. to prepare for this. Uh, and, and we focused our energies on the Middle East, oh. right? Saudi Arabia, UAE, places like that, you know, uh, and, you know, we were lucky because, you know, first Asia imploded, the Middle East had basically a small speed bump, right? They just shut down flights and told everyone to stay home. <laughs> you know what I mean? And business just kept kind of moved a little slower, but it kept moving, right? Yep. And, and then Europe completely froze and then North America completely froze, right? But we kept the Middle East moving, business moving forward through all of this, right? Um, but like one of those deals I'm talking about was a US deal, you know, that we came to terms in, you know, January, February on that we still haven't signed. Right, because all of a sudden that company had to go off and bring in ten other vendors, right? <laughs> you know, mm, but that's how sure. we prepared for it. Is we got early signal, we prepped yeah. for it, and then you know we just kept the team cohesive. You know, you just let people know, hey, we're here for you. If you have kids, you know, that are no longer in school and stuff, and you know, we have to be accommodating. And you know, our number one focus is to keep everyone's jobs going here right and you know even in all hands i said oh, why don't we hire so and so i'm like because my job is not to hire new people my job right now is to keep your job at your current pay scale right so so and that and that's how you survive these things right so you've been through recessions before yes yeah many of them right early 90s dot-com bus global financial crisis does this feel the same this one happened. It's interesting because I can, I'm not I'm not quite clear if this one's going to be, you know, a depression, recession, great recession, or if it's going to be a disaster recovery, right? Because like here in the U.S., you'll have a hurricane slam into Florida and nothing happened. You know, every business there is shut down for three weeks, and then two or three weeks after that, boom, they're all back, right? And you can see that happening in places like Florida and Georgia where they were only shut down for like four or five weeks. These are U.S. states uh, versus, you know, like here in San Francisco. I mean, they just said, I mean, they just had the announcement today, right? That like fitness studios can open again in mid-August, right? That's a five wow. months, five wow. months, you know, for a yoga studio or a CrossFit gym or a Pilates studio to be shut down. I just don't know how they survived. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh so, so it's a mix, right? Because for the places that shut down for a short amount of time, I think, you know, you will see a bit of a V-shaped recovery. And then for the ones that did not, it's going to be a disaster, right? Yeah. So do you have a playbook every time this has happened? Yeah. Which is you got to hunker down, you have to cockroach through it like a nuclear winter, right? And then you have to figure out where your opportunities are. And for us, we have had, you know, we're one of these rare businesses that, that COVID has been good for. Because, you know, our primary sectors are financial services, healthcare, rest of the world, right? Middle East, Asia, places like that. And, and they all got caught. You know, if you're a bank, you know, in some random country, right? And, and all of a sudden you can't say, well, come on down to the branch and let's have a conversation about it, right? Everything had to move online. 
And the way things move online is by using best of breed cloud vendors, right? But you're not allowed to run, you know, Salesforce or Mambu or Zendesk, you know, if all your data, your banking data needs to be in Vietnam, right? Or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia. And that's where we come in. We're the glue that lets you take those regulated bits out. So all of a sudden, every bank, healthcare provider, you know, even government agency now all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, we have to get online as fast as possible, right? Because yeah. this thing could be another wave. There could be another one of these things. Oh, wow, we suck. We have to fix this. Uh, and we're part of the fix-it solution, right? Yeah, I see. And what about churn? You know, it's when you sell deep enterprise, uh, churn is rare. It's not like monthly churn, like these little SaaS companies, right? It's usually like a two to three month implementation cycle right and one to three year contracts so usually the only way you're getting churned out in the you know in the short term is if you completely fail violate your slas get breached things like that yeah that's why a lot of um you know uh b2b SaaS small like uh, small business b2b SaaS or or even mid-market uh the longer it's longer lead times but uh more quality customers yeah, I mean, for the ones that are selling like by the month SaaS, yeah, they 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 got you know the small business they got screwed hard, right? Um, yeah. And it's a tough business. So, I mean, look, I mean, let's let's be realistic. You know, small businesses are just getting hammered, and you can see it because like here in America, I don't know about Australia, but like Walmart was open and Target was open, right? You know, uh, Whole Foods was open, but if you have a flower shop right next to Whole Foods, you are not allowed to be open. But Whole Foods yeah. was open, including their flower shop area, right? So basically, we said big business all the way, small business, you're screwed, right? And, and yeah, yeah, it's just like in this, you know, rapacious capitalistic sort of system, it's hard to be a small business. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, it's funny you mentioned Whole Foods. I spoke to John this week, uh, yeah. founder, and he said they're not making profit. Well, they were in a tough position anyway, making profit, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, yeah, you know what I mean? Like you would have thought, like I said, oh, like it's boom time for you guys, right? And he's mm -hmm. like, no, we're, 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 just, we're just keeping everybody around and we're breaking even. There's some categories that are doing well, but we have to spend all this money on masks. for So for 100,000 employees, we've got to mm -hmm. spend money on masks. We've got to spend money on cleaning. We've got to spend money on sanitizing. Yeah. Um, and he said there's, you know, we, you know, the supply chain issues. Yeah, I was really surprised because yeah. you, you look at these businesses and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, you know, I, I sell a physical product that solves this need or, you know, I'm a supermarket or whatever. And yeah, I found that very surprising. Yeah. I mean, look, they're in a tough spot because they only sell groceries primarily, but, you know, the folks that are selling other stuff. Like Target had an excuse to stay open and they kept their clothing more section open and everything. You know what I mean? Same with Home Depot, right? They're still selling like appliances and da da da. So, so some of these folks actually did really well, right? And it, Whole Foods, maybe they're a break even, but you know, that flower store after a five month shutdown is never coming back, right? Um, you know, or if they do, it's not going to be in California, right? They're going to move to Texas or something, right? You know, so yeah, it's been a really, it's been a very unique time because you, you know, it's like uh, the survival of the fittest, if you will, right? And 
And I like to call it the current acceleration, right? Which is like, we just got fast forwarded 10 years into the future, you know, and how was a flower shop going to do 10 years from now, right? Uh, probably not well. Um, so it is fascinating moment in time, right? Yoga studio versus workout at home with yoga glow, you know, the trend was already happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what do you think is going to happen? With what? With this uh, coronavirus situation? or Yeah, with like, like uh, you know, small business, the economy. Like I said, you've, you've been through, you, you mentioned three of, three of these kind of recessions because I think, you know, they say that um, the coronavirus was just clouding a looming recession. Um, it was going to happen anyways. Just the coronavirus gave it a reason. Um, to, but what, yeah. what do I think? I don't know, man. I mean... The markets are back because the Fed published enough, printed enough money to make it happen in the U.S. I think the Europeans just did the same thing. The ECB just put out a three-quarter trillion euro stimulus. Uh, so they're just going to print money through this thing. Um, I think certain businesses are going to fall by the wayside, but then others are going to do really well. And I think patterns are being set now to buy stuff online, you know, uh, you know, not go into stores, which was already a trend that was happening anyway. So that kind of stuff is getting accelerated. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I think in some sectors you're going to see a V-shaped recovery and other ones now, right? Mm, yeah, no, I see. Oh, it's interesting. So, yeah, well, look, um, Peter, we have to work towards wrapping up. This was a really yeah. great conversation um, and we covered a lot of diverse topics. I have two more questions for you. Um Question number one is, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and in-country and your work? Um, and then the last question is, kind of, do you have any words of wisdom or, or parting pieces that you'd like to share? Yeah, so, you know, find out more. There's incountry.com, um, spelled as you would expect. And then uh, my Twitter is Peter Yared, Y-A-R-E-D, and LinkedIn is the same. Uh and, you know, we're always posting interesting articles about the space and such. And then I also have all the articles I've written over the almost past 20 years or at yared.com, yared.com. All of us old guys got our last names as our as domains in the early days, right? In the 90s. Uh, and, you know, my thoughts on a variety of stuff. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I apologize. For, oh, words of wisdom. You know, we've kind of covered them, but... You know, it's pretty simple, right? Because catching trends actually is not that hard, right? You can always find like the outlier wacky people. What are they all doing, right? They're all moving to Surrey, you know, to set up cafes, right? Great. Start investing in buildings there, right? You know what I mean? It's like the trends actually are not that complicated. And somebody said years ago that on the trends, it's a cycle of unbundling and rebundling. Right. And you can even see it in the Internet. Right. Because the early days of the Internet, it was like AOL, CompuServe, you know, sites like that. Then it went to any website and now it's Facebook, Twitter. Right. You know what I mean? So it's probably going to have to get unbundled. Right. So if you catch those trends, just look for them and then, you know, have an idea. Tinker with the idea. Build an end to end prototype. See what's happening. See if it has a little bit of traction. And then and only then actually dedicate your life to it right? would be my advice. That's the playbook, right? For not for it's not the only playbook for doing a company, but it's my playbook for 
you know, doing a company and not being miserable. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Well, look, um, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you, you were very, very giving with uh, all of your experiences shared. And uh, yeah, look, I, I hope you and your family stay safe in uh, San Francisco. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. And I super appreciate it. Great questions and great energy. So thank you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.